we focused our attention this week. Of course, most of you know that today is Palm Sunday. It's typically the day we celebrate and think about Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem as, the, as he's heralded and welcomed as the Messiah. People believed him to be the promised one of the prophecies in the Old Testament, and they proclaimed, Hosanna to the Son of David. Salvation has come in the name of the Lord. And, and they rejoiced at his coming on that, on that Palm Sunday. Um, I think one of the, the, the tragedies in the church calendar is that we, we take really so little time to cover all of the events that happen. We have Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, and there's so much that happens in between. We just don't have time to cover everything. And so really over the next two weeks, um, starting today and into next week, we're going to focus our attention primarily on the events of the cross, and in particular, Jesus's declaration from the cross regarding a, what I call a final sermon that he gives from the cross. And uh, I want to just kind of set, set up for that this morning by reading to you out of Mark's gospel, just, just to kind of set the setting. But we're going to be, our primary text for the next couple weeks is going to be in Psalm 22. So uh, Mark 15 and Psalm 22, if you want to follow along in your Bibles this morning. I'm going to read this to you, just as I said, to set the setting. It says, they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered among the transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads, saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he is calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. This is the setting from which we remember Christ's sacrifice. It sets up for us the setting 
for our, our message over these next couple weeks is I really want to focus our attention on this declaration, the only declaration from Christ that Mark records for us as Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, while there's no doubt that there was anguish in the heart of our Lord and a deep sense of separation from his Father that he had never experienced previously, I honestly believe that he was, in fact, preaching a sermon to us from the cross. You see, those words are the very opening verse of Psalm 22. They are the very same words. And in, at the time of Christ, you see, the Psalms weren't numbered the way they are today. They didn't know Psalm 22 by Psalm 22. That's not how they would find the Psalms when they would go to look at them. They would refer to the Psalms by the first verse in the Psalm. They would memorize the first verse of the Psalm, and that's how you knew which Psalm was being referred to. And many times when, when rabbis and teachers would speak of a psalm, they would speak of the entirety of a psalm just by mentioning the first verse. And so as Jesus is suffering there on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I believe he is directing our attention as he was directing the attention of those who were looking on that day to remember Psalm 22, to look at what it speaks of and the truths that it contains. He was making a proclamation in this moment of agony that people might recognize the reality of who he was and what he was accomplishing, not that God had forsaken him, but that God's will was being accomplished through him. So I would ask you this morning, if you're turned to Psalm 22, if you would stand with me this morning as we read again God's Word as our primary text for understanding this morning. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest, yet you are holy. O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. For there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They opened wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax it has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of earth of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O oh Lord, be not far off. 
O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. You answer me. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. O oh, gracious Father, so much in this text of Scripture to think about and consider as it portrays for us the suffering of your Son, Jesus Christ, but also the hope of redemption. As we focus our attention on your word this morning, Lord, I pray that you would simply give us ears to hear and hearts to receive. That you would fill me with your spirit as I proclaim these truths, Lord, that you would guard me from error and that you would strengthen me to preach only that which is supported by scripture. And Lord, that in all things, you would glorify your name. And it's in that mighty name, the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You can be seated. I hope as we read through that passage in Psalm 22 that you could picture the suffering of Christ. Because it certainly was meant in that way as Jesus directs our attention to the psalm. He says, I am fulfilling this in your presence. This which you have read about written by the hand of King David, who of course was in the lineage of Christ, or Christ in the lineage of David. He was the son of David. And it was meant more than just to show similarities between things David experienced and things Jesus was experiencing. For a lot of the things that David wrote in his lifetime were were understood and were, were taken to be pointing forward to a greater king who would come. To one who, in his, who would come in his line and who would be a ruler in Jerusalem and who would be the king of kings. This imagery in Psalm 22 is related in, in Mark's gospel and in, and in the other gospels in Matthew and Luke and John, all giving us a a fuller picture of what actually happened. And yet we see this description written almost a thousand years before the time of Christ. And as Jesus is there hanging on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And 
we understand, of course, when in Mark's gospel, you understand there were people there that their hearts were hardened. They didn't understand. They didn't want to understand what Jesus said. They mis purposefully misinterpreted what he was saying. He cried out in, in Aramaic that psalm title, which was the common language of the people, which is why it's in interpreted for us. And of course, the the Jews would would have known and would have understand understood what was going on, but purposefully redirecting away from Psalm 22 in order that they might continue to mock him. And yet, these words so powerfully picturing what, what was happening in the life of Jesus as he hung from that cross in the, at the end of the darkness that had come. And that darkness can only be understood as that darkness which comes from the separation of the Father and the Son for the only time in eternity. The Father was uniquely separated from the Son as Jesus endured his wrath against sin. And Jesus directs our attention to this passage, which is only properly understood through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of the cross. And so it's from that perspective that we are going to approach this psalm and we're going to look at six declarations, six proclamations that come from Psalm 22 in relation to what Jesus accomplished and what he was doing on the cross. If you're ready, would you say amen? I want you to see, first of all, in these first few verses of Psalm 22, a proclamation of the Father's faithfulness. Of course, immediately in the, in the first two verses, we're encountered with this perception of despair. That despair that Jesus was encountering and, and enduring at that very moment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Certainly, there was a feeling of despair, although that despair is still pointing to a greater reality because Jesus knew, he knew that he had not been abandoned. I mean, but there's a big difference between what you feel in the moment of a dire circumstance and what you know to be true in your mind. He knew that he was there to accomplish the Father's will. Just the night before, he had been praying in the Garden of Gethsemane with, with, and sweating great drops of blood and praying with tears that the Father might deliver him if only it were possible. But he says, but yet not my will be done, but your will. He knew what lay ahead of him. He knew what was to come. He knew that in the desperation of this moment that he would be turned over to death. He knew that. And he knew that his death would accomplish the Father's purpose of redemption. And yet he cries out, Why have you forsaken me? Why, if you will, have you not answered my prayer? We're going to see a little bit later that his prayer was answered, and yet in the darkness of this moment, there is this perception of despair. 
the people who had only a few days earlier cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, had a few hours earlier cried out, crucify him. He had been flogged, had the muscle ripped from his body with a whip, had a crown of thorns pressed down upon his head, been beaten, mocked, ridiculed, spit upon. And he knew there was only one thing left, having had his hands and his feet pierced by the nails in the cross, only death awaited. Now originally we understand these to be the words of King David, but as I said, David often wrote of things that pointed forward to some to a greater reality, to a greater truth. And of course in David's lifetime, we know that he suffered some pretty terrible things. He suffered at the hands of Saul when Saul was king, and Saul went all over the country chasing him down, trying to kill him. And David more than once feared for his life. We know that after David became king, that his own son sought to usurp the throne and to seek his death. It could have been at either one of these times or perhaps some other time in David's life. We're not told exactly when David wrote this, but we know that it is it captures for us the reality of, of life in which many of us find ourselves from time to time. In those times of difficulty and desperation in which we don't know where God is. We don't know if He hears our prayer. Sometimes we're, things are so desperate and so hard and so difficult, we're not even sure that He's there, that He's listening. Have you ever been there? Have you ever experienced that where, where you just, you're just not sure where God is or how He, or, and you feel like He's abandoned you, that He's forgotten about you? You wonder why He doesn't answer. Maybe, maybe you've been in a, a marriage that seems to have lost all hope or maybe you've lost your job and you weren't sure what you were going to do next to be able to provide for your family or perhaps you received a diagnosis of a, a spouse or a child and you didn't know how they would endure or even if they'd survive. Or maybe you just, an unexpected death of someone you were close to. So many things happen in our life in which we can feel abandoned. We can feel like God is so far away from us because of the difficulties that we face. And yet, when Jesus, when Jesus makes this cry from the cross, we, we get this really a beautiful picture in understanding that Jesus understands our pain, that he understands the desperation of our circumstances, that he understands and knows that no matter, no matter what we're going through, he can identify with us. And so in, in that sense, it's a, it's a beautiful picture to, to see Jesus in this moment of desperation crying out, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day and you do not answer. And by night I have no rest. And so I think we've, we've all been there at one time or another. And we can know in the midst of our difficulty that Christ understands. But it's, it's not our circumstances that determine reality. It's not the way we feel that is true. It is the promise and the working of God's purposes and God's will that are ultimately true. Yes, Jesus 
in that moment, while he knew God's will was being accomplished, he felt abandoned. But we know that he wasn't. How do we know? Because ultimately he had victory over death. Three days later, he was going to rise from the dead. But he had to endure. He had to go through that difficulty. He had to, to endure that suffering and that death. There was a sense of despair, but there was also hope in God's faithfulness. And as we get into the next few verses of Psalm 22, um, it, it points us to this perspective from history, not one of despair, but one of faithfulness. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. No matter what's going on in our life, no matter how difficult things seem, God is still on the throne. And God is still worthy of praise. In verse 4 it says, In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. I mean, think about the history of Israel. And think about what they, what they went through. And they had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, right? Those are difficult days, difficult times. And yet God saw what they were doing and God brought them out of the land of Egypt, right? But did they, just, did they just fall down and worship God and do everything he said? No. They still were rebellious. They still wanted to do their own thing. And so God let them wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. But what did God do during that time? God was with them. God provided for them. God demonstrated his grace, his love, his mercy. God continued to, to work through them and to discipline them and direct them in order that they might know him. And he does that for us as well. And so the Israel as a nation, of course, was not disappointed because ultimately God brought them to the promised land. He defeated their enemies. He gave them an inheritance. But were they faithful? No. They continued to rebel against God and to think their own strength had accomplished what they had. And then God again brought discipline on them in order that he might show himself to be holy and show they utterly needed him. Jesus, as he's on the cross, he makes this same proclamation, the same declaration that despite the difficulties that surround us, that God is faithful and he is worthy of our praise. We know from Romans 8, 28, that God is working all things together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. We can say with Job, as he declared in Job 13, 15, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. No matter what we're going through, God is faithful. And we would do well to remember the example of Job and the example even more so of Christ who endured the ultimate suffering in order to provide hope for us. As Jesus points us to the Psalms, he points us to hope as he proclaims God's faithfulness in seemingly hopeless times. And as we move on through the next few verses, we see not only that there is a proclamation of God's faithfulness, but there is a proclamation of humanity's sinfulness. This, in fact, is why Jesus was on the cross in the first place. Look with me in Psalm 22, beginning in verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. 
Do you see the, the, the pattern of sinfulness in these people who were rejecting Christ? Of course, in, the, in context, it's the rejection of David, right? David's saying, the people reject my ruling. They reject me as king. They, they reject me as, as your chosen one. You remember when, when Saul was chasing David uh, through the wilderness and twice David had the opportunity to kill Saul? and to rightfully take the throne that God had promised to him? And yet, what did David say each time? Each time Saul was given into his hands, he says, who am I that I might raise my hand against the Lord's anointed? So when David ascends to kingship, he recognizes that God has placed him there. And yet, as the Lord's anointed, the people rejected him. And then we look to Christ at the cross, and we see a, a man who, who has lived in perfect righteousness, in perfect holiness. He had done only good to people. He healed the sick, the deaf, the mute, the lame, and the blind. He helped feed the poor. He, he comforted the, those who were sick and suffering. And yet, the people rejected him. Why? Why do people reject the Lord's anointed? Because of sin. People reject the Lord because of sin. People love their sin more than they love God. It's just the reality of the world in which we live. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, in Mark's... In Mark's um, gospel, which we read a little while ago in 1530, it paraphrases um, a little bit of what we see here in verses 7 and 8, and he simply says, Save, the, the people were saying to themselves, save yourself and come down from the cross. They were mocking him, right? They were mocking this one who was up on the cross. In uh, Matthew chapter 27, uh, verses 41 through 43, we get a little bit more detail, and it mirrors the passage in Psalm 22 more closely. It begins there, it says, In the same way the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. And then verse 43 in particular, He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. And then in Psalm 22, what does it say? Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. You see the, the imagery in Psalm 22 being played out in the scene surrounding Jesus on the cross. And the imagery is meant to remind us and to reveal to us the intent of people's hearts. The people, the same people who had rejoiced at his triumphal entry in Jerusalem, had cried out, crucify him, and now we're mocking him from the ground beneath the cross. Saying, if he is the Son of God, if God truly delights in him, let him come down so that we might believe. Do you think they would have believed if he came down? No. They didn't believe all the other miracles he had done. They always wanted more. It's because... We're born into this world with a sinful nature. We're born into this world seeking self-preservation and selfish desire. We're prideful creatures, and pride is our greatest enemy. 
It causes strife, disagreements, and all kinds of conflict. Our expectation of others are often formed from our own experience and rarely take into account the complexities of their experience and situations. And when people fail to meet our expectations, we feel betrayed and we reject them. This is what happened with Jesus. The people had a certain expectation of what they wanted from their Messiah. And when Jesus didn't fulfill the expectations the way that they wanted him to, they rejected him. They mocked him. They ridiculed him. They called for his execution. But it is a product of our fallen nature. And it's the reason that Jesus was on the cross in the first place. Because of our sin. But Jesus, he's not only trying to point out the reality for why he's there and showing us the reality of sinfulness, but also in a recognition of hope. In verses 9 and 10, it says, Yet you, referring to God, yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's wombs. There is this, these two verses are just filled with the, with the reality that regardless of circumstances, that God is still God. And that there is still a relationship there. And that in the darkest of times and in the darkest of moments, that, there, that God is never far away. Both David and Jesus knew the difficulties that they faced were not indicative of a lack of God's concern or the reality of their relationship to him. And that if they were to endure, they must remember that God can be trusted. Always. Even unto death. See, God's purpose was being accomplished through the death of Christ. And if we look at church history and you think about how often has God used suffering and death to further his purposes, to further the preaching of the gospel, to further his kingdom. You see, over and over, God uses suffering and death to accomplish his purposes. Because it's only through the gospel of Jesus Christ that we can have true hope in the midst of suffering and even death. Because the gospel is greater both than our suffering and death. Because our God is a God who transcends life itself. There is, there is no limitation to God in what he wants to do and how he works through our lives for his purposes and for his glory. He's not limited to the finiteness of our own individual lives. But he works within our lives for the glory of his name. And he works through our lives, through our suffering, and even sometimes through our death for the glory of his name and for the furthering of his kingdom. We can trust him no matter what may come into our life. And Jesus is saying, I trust him even though I face certain death. He is still my And so this sermon goes from declaring God's faithfulness to declaring man's sinfulness in order that it might also declare the Savior's suffering. 
and his suffering is highlighted for us in verses 11 through 18. Beginning with a prayer for intervention. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. There's no doubt that the situation that Jesus was in was desperate. That, that he, there was, he was not going to escape death. And so why make, why make the plea? Why make the prayer? Why, why, say, why would you say anything? Why would you ask for deliverance if you know you're not going to get out of it? You see, because we don't understand God's greater purposes. But, but he did. If we can trust God through our suffering and even in death, then we can understand that, that our prayers are never unheard if we have a right relationship with God. You see, when we have a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ, His ear is inclined to us and He hears our prayers. In the book of Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7, speaking of Jesus, it says, In the days of His flesh, He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save Him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. And I always thought that that was strange, that, that Jesus prayed to be delivered from death. And Scripture affirms that God heard his prayer, and yet he still died. You see, a lot of times I think we misunderstand what it means for God to hear our prayers. We think if God hears our prayers, then he must answer in accordance with our desire. We think God hearing our prayer means he hears our prayer and answers them the way we want him to answer them. And a lot of times God hears our prayers and he answers them the way he wants to answer them. You see, God's intervention is not always the deliverance from difficulty, but the strength to endure it. Now, I think as I've have contemplated that verse many times over in Hebrews that Jesus was heard because of his piety. And of course, we know ultimately Jesus was delivered from death. He didn't avoid death, but through death and through that glorious resurrection on the third day, he was ultimately brought forth and conquered death itself. In these moments on the cross, this darkness surrounding him, Jesus cries out to the Father when all seems hopeless. And yet he recognized his need for endurance. Think about this. Did Jesus have the power to come off the cross? Of course he did. He was the Son of God. I mean, this is a guy... You know, he walked on water. He, put, he raised the dead. Could he have done something as simple as coming off a cross? Certainly. He needed the strength of his Father so that he might endure and accomplish his will. And we're reminded in that the reality that he was not up there because of what he had done. But he was up there for our sake for the things that we have done that have offended a holy God. And I believe he would have us understand that he, what he endured for our sakes 
he did so in accordance with God's will and for the glory of his name. And we see that suffering described for us in verses 14 through 18. It says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax that has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast Can you see Christ on the cross in that? Can you see that reality and that suffering? We see his body stretched out on the cross like bones out of joint. The weakness of his body described as the drying out of broken pieces of pottery. You know, after Jesus is flogging and because of the blood loss that he endured just from that, he wasn't even able to carry his cross as as offenders most often were made to carry their cross to the, to the crucifixion. He only carried it part way, and they had to get somebody else to carry it for him. Simon of Cyrene was, was enlisted to carry Jesus' cross for him. So he was weak even before he got up on the cross. And it says here, the, the picture of his, his weakness, it says, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, like broken pieces of, of clay pottery, just, just nothing left. Blood loss had caused dehydration, and his tongue cleaved to his jaw. And we know from John's gospel that he cried out at this time, I thirst. The chilling words of verse 16, they pierced my hands and my feet. And we see clearly the hands and feet of Jesus with the nails driven through them. A startling picture of crucifixion. It's interesting, some have tried to take verse 16 and interpret it differently. There's a ambiguity, I'll say, in the Hebrew originally as to what this could mean. They pierced my hands and my feet. It could have the meaning in, in the original Hebrew of something as, as like a lion. And yet, it's interesting because the Old Testament that the disciples and the Jews of Jesus' time were most familiar with was actually written in Greek. It had been translated over into the Greek language. And it was, and it was uh, in a translation called the Septuagint. And that was what they read and what they were familiar with. And what was most commonly used in their synagogues was that Greek translation from the Hebrew. And in the Greek, it only translates, they pierced my hands and my feet. So when Jesus points them to Psalm 22, if they thought about it as it came to them and what they understood and what they had memorized and what they knew, it was this. They pierced my hands and my feet. An undeniable, an undeniable reality to what was happening and a, and a reason to deny any skepticism regarding that translation. The weakness of the body and the degree of suffering are apparent. And even as we look upon his bones, or look upon his body, we can see his bones. You see in those pictures of the crucifixion where his ribs are just hanging out. And, and then, of course, you have the soldiers dividing his clothes and casting lots for his cloak. We read about that in Mark's Gospel. See, all of this 
I believe Jesus means for us to understand when he cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wants us to understand that even in the midst of that dark circumstance, God is still faithful. But that he needed to endure because of our sinfulness. He was there for our sake. We often think of the cross as the epitome of God's love, which of course it is. But it is also a symbol of the absolute wretchedness of our sinfulness. Because our sin required the sacrifice of God's Son. We have a tendency to reject things that don't fit our own agenda, fit our ideas, our way of wanting things to be a certain way, even when it comes to understanding God and sin. People throughout the world and throughout time, all or most all have understood that there is a God. But they've often rejected God as he's revealed himself in favor of a God that they desire. They want God to be a God who will forgive them on their own terms. A God who will accept them and their sin. They don't want salvation that requires repentance. They want the security of salvation in their sin as well. But you know what? We don't get to make those decisions. We don't get to choose who God is. We don't get to determine how God saves. We must accept God as he's revealed himself in scripture. And we must come to him based on his terms. Through the sacrifice of his son. If there were any other way to be saved, the cross of Christ would not have been necessary. But Christ went to the cross. Because only a blood sacrifice could atone and pay for the penalty of sin. Scripture tells us that the wages of sin is death. Scripture also reveals to us that life is in the blood. And that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Christ's sacrifice was necessary. We want a God who understands our sin, not one who judges it. We want to be saved from the consequences of our sin, but we don't want to let go of our sin. We want salvation apart from repentance. There is no such thing. We must accept God and his way of salvation as it has been revealed to us in Scripture, in this passage. His suffering was for us, not in some generic sense, but for us specifically, that he might pay the penalty of the sins of all who would call upon him in faith and repentance. That feeling of forsakenness that Jesus experienced on the cross that's a feeling that we ought to experience when we recognize our own sin before a holy God. When we recognize the reality of the judgment that we deserve. 
And unless we repent of our sin and surrender ourselves to Christ, we will feel that forsakenness one day in its fullest form as we endure the just penalty against sin for our failure to come to Christ and be cleansed. You see, if we look to Christ, look to the cross, recognize what was being accomplished in Him is what we deserve. And if we turn to Him for forgiveness and surrender to His way, then He has promised to forgive us, to renew our hearts, to cleanse us from sin, and to never leave us nor forsake us. As long as we draw breath, there is an opportunity to be saved. But if we continue to reject His provision in the hopes of continuing in our sin as long as possible, we only harden our hearts towards His grace and reveal the true desire and lack of love for what He has done for us. And if we have professed faith in Christ and claimed His forgiveness, yet continue in a pattern of unrepentant sin, we reveal that our hearts were never truly converted. A heart that's been truly converted, yes. Will it struggle? Yes. Will it still sin from time to time? Yes. But does it continue in a pattern of unrepentant sin? No. We cannot abandon Christ once He's gotten a hold of us because He will not let us go. He holds us close to Him. The Lord saves us as we are, but He refuses to leave us that way. Maybe this morning you recognize that your heart is not right before God and you need to be saved. Or maybe you know for certain that you've been saved, but you're just struggling in your obedience. The Bible is clear. If you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have only to repent and believe. Sometimes we tend to think of repentance as something that we just do at the moment of salvation, but Scripture reveals it as something that is an ongoing practice of a Christian disciple. Because the longer we walk with Christ, the more He reveals to us the waywardness of our heart and the more He draws us in to that relationship and exposes us in our weakness and the more we desire to be drawn close to Him and to experience His presence in new and fresh ways. The Spirit is given to us for the power of conviction and transformation. He is faithful. And that faithfulness is nowhere more fully demonstrated than when we see Jesus on the cross. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, so much, Lord, to be said for what you have done for us through your son Jesus. So much, Lord, that we can't make up for where we have failed you, 
rejected you, ridiculed you, mocked you. And yet, you call us to come and take the water of life freely. You call us to repent and believe and have our sins washed away. You call us to be renewed day by day in our faith and in our service to you. Oh Lord, let us hear that calling and let us respond with a heart of repentance and a heart full of faith. Move among us today, Lord. Draw sinners to yourself. Draw the saints to yourself. Let us be one in Christ. Let us rejoice in salvation that comes through the sacrifice of Jesus. Let us be strengthened in our faith and in our ability to witness to others, to declare to them the hope of the gospel that brings courage out of desperation, that brings hope where there is no hope that brings life where there is only death. Help us to see, Lord, that we are not forsaken, but that we are ultimately loved with a love that surpasses all understanding with a love that transcends time and history, that cuts across time in order to redeem all who will come to you in faith. Give us courage to respond to you, Lord, that we might be transformed by your presence and by the truth of the gospel. And we pray these things in Jesus' most precious and holy name. And all of God's people said, Amen.